Good afternoon, and welcome to Strategies for Mitigating Third-Party Security Risk, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Proofpoint. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health Systems CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today. First, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Shafali Mukancheri, Chief Information Security Officer and System Director of IS with Edward Elmhurst Health, Teresa Tontat, VP of IT and CISO with Texas Children's Hospital, and Ryan Witt, Managing Director of Healthcare for Proofpoint. And then we will have our audience Q&A. So let's jump right in. Lots of good stuff to talk about today. Very important topic, probably very, not too many other topics more important in the security realm. So looking forward to it. Um, Shafali, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Uh, yes. Hi, uh, Shafali Mukancheri with Edward Elmhurst Health. Um, I am the Chief Information Security Officer uh, there, and I am responsible for administering, managing, and implementing a formal cybersecurity or information security program uh, at EEH. And so I work with everyone from the board on down uh, related to all sorts of different topics of security. All right, very good, Shafali. Thank you. Um, Teresa? Hi, Anthony. Um, thanks for having me. Teresa Tonthad, I'm the Vice President of IT and CISO at Texas Children's. Texas Children's is located in Houston, Texas, and we are the largest pediatric uh, hospital in the U.S. We have around 90 plus locations in the Texas area. Um, and we serve over 520 members through our Texas Children's Health Plan, as well as our provider system. Uh, I'm responsible for cybersecurity, but as well, but also infrastructure, biomedical engineering, HTM, and digital services. So I have, I'm lucky enough to wear two hats, the CISO hat, and as well as the CTO hat. Oh, okay. Very good. Uh, Ryan? Hi, my name is Ryan Witt. I am the Managing Director of Healthcare at Proofpoint. I am also the chair of the company's healthcare customer advisory board. Uh, it's the only advisory board the company has that's dedicated to an industry, and we're going on our fifth year. Um, my role principally is to be the megaphone internally for healthcare, so trying to understand uh, very deeply healthcare industry use cases and the challenges that industry faces so that Proofpoint can go build out capability and improve and enhance the overall experience for uh, healthcare industry customers. Proofpoint is, is an organization that is very focused on protecting people and how they're attacked. Um, you could, whether whatever server you're looking at these days, for the most part, uh, threat actors or bad actors are targeting people in the way they work, often through email or through the cloud or other sort of channels. And so we have a, a range of technology and solutions that try to mitigate against that. Thank you for having me. All right. Very good, Ryan. Thank you. 
All right, uh, let's get into it. Shafali, let's start with you. Define third-party risk. What does it include? Is there any fuzziness in this def definition that you think that some people include and some people don't? Is there any gray area or is it pretty clear cut? Yeah, there's definitely a gray area here, Anthony. Uh, third-party risk could be anything. It can include any subcontractors that, you know, you're thinking you're only contracted with a vendor, but what if there's offshoring, outsourcing? You have to really look at all that as well as part of your third-party risk. Many payers within the U.S., they do hold accountable the covered entities for any subcontractors um, as well as part of what we would call third-party so there's definitely risk there, but again, looking at third party as a vendor, a subcontractor, and then anybody else that they subcontract to as well. So it's the entire life cycle within the supply chain management that, you know, I would consider third party. All right. Very good. Teresa? Um, I think Shafali defined it pretty well. The only thing I would um, add to that is when we step back and think about third party risk, not just with your cybersecurity lens, um, any type of risk that would disrupt the organization's ability to provide operations for healthcare, to provide care for our, member, um, for our patients, patient families, and then from a health plan perspective, care for our members. Um, risk that could come out of third party, obviously could be ransomware, it could be data exposure, but it also could eventually impact financials um, and brand reputation to the hospital that is ultimately accountable for that relationship with the third party. So it's um, definitely a hot topic uh, in today's world with everything shifting to the cloud for third party technologies, but we can't forget about third party managed services as well. It doesn't necessarily come with the technology, but it truly is a risk item that we, we need to keep front and center as well. Very good, Ryan. It's been covered pretty well. What I would probably add here, just to maybe extend the conversation, is we shouldn't um, minimize the le the lengths that threat actors go to to try to understand this threat vector. Um, they're preying upon the good nature of of people who work in um, the third party or supply chain. Uh, engagement. Um, they're leveraging the fact that for the most part, there's already a two degree, a trusted level relationship between a health system and their, their various business associates. And they've done a significant amount of social engineering to try to understand what that relationship between the third party is to the health system and are very adept at creating and crafting compelling communications that that make the health system want to interact with with the various um, email messages that come through. So I think it's we should just make sure we un we understand and emphasize why it's such an impactful uh, and risky um, threat vector. Yeah, it's interesting, Ryan. Let's let's talk about this a little more. There's a number of levels of risk associated with third party. There's the risk that the vendor um, that that application get some sort of virus and that can get possibly into your network, right? That that could be one risk. There's a risk of that vendor going out for any reason, tornado, anything, uh, ransomware, whatever, that application no longer being available to your users. That's a risk. And what you're talking about is a different dimension of risk. It's the risk because of the relationships that people have in supply chain 
with third parties, the risk of them uh, being tricked uh, and sort of conned through an email scam. That's another, are those, those are all different types of risk, correct? A absolutely. And I have different sort of outcomes, uh, adverse outcomes. Um, but yes, there are different types of risks. I, I was really focusing on, at least in my narrative, about the type of risk where somebody launches an attack purporting to mm -hmm. come from your right. supply chain or send an imposter email that that seems to come from somebody you already have been working with, either at an organization or a name, and they've somehow taken over that account through some sort of nefarious ways, and then they they latch on to a previous sort of conversation or they spin up a new conversation, but they do so in a way that's a natural extension of the of a dialogue that you've been previously having with that individual or related to the type of business or engagement you would have with that individual. So it's much more difficult for the receiver of these emails to make a determination whether it's a um, a nefarious attack um, because there's nothing that would trigger, there's no natural trigger, at least from a technology standpoint, there's not like a, mm -hmm. a malicious link or a, a suspicious sort of file or not even asking the, the receiver of this communication to do anything right now. They're just essentially befriending them and keeping that conversation going and trying to um, establish, build, and extend that rapport. And the very good bad actors are very clever about what they will ask for and when they will ask that question. And they are incredibly patient. And they will ask for pieces of information that seem innocuous, but over time, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You keep giving a little bits of information before you know it. They can start solving the jigsaw puzzle. And in this instance, jigsaw puzzle could be you know, finding a way to penetrate your network or, you know, intercept payments or whatever, whatever their goal is. But, you know, it's, it's, it's very, they can, they can use this information piece by piece to go build up a very compelling understanding of how to launch an exploit against you. Teresa, how do you think of it? The, the sort of buckets I mentioned that you could send them three buckets perhaps. Um, and then the, the, the uh, third party risk, element that Ryan was discussing, do you see those as separate and different and need to be dealt with differently? Or do you see them somehow under a third-party risk umbrella? I think it falls under a large third-party risk umbrella, but that umbrella is quite large. Um, Ryan was pretty much talking about business email compromise, which is a very lucrative uh, industry right now. If you follow you know, the up of billions of dollars of revenue for fraudsters and bad actors of being able to um, pivot financial payments to their banks in a an unauthorized bank accounts. Right? I mean, it happens quite frequently. And I would say the 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 bad guys are getting more sophisticated. Instead of just spoofing um, a CFO's email account or accounts payable account or a buyer's account. They're actually hacking in successfully into these smaller third-party vendors that are doing business and actually being that, taking mm. over that account on behalf of that AP or that um, buyer. So we, we do see that happening. And it's really hard because 
we train our employees to look for external emails. We, we, we train employees for um, making sure that the email domains are correct and it's not being spoofed. But when the actual correct email is being compromised because the bad guys are actually in the environment of the third party, it is very difficult to um, ascertain when that happens. So what we do at Texas Children's is we say, yes, you still have to verify. If that person that you may have a good relationship for is asking for you to do something a little bit different out of your normal business processes, red flag, right? Pick up the phone, call them directly, escalate up to your leaders. We've done quite a bit of business email compromise simulations with our supply chain team, our accounts payable team, um, and most recently our HR team because they use a lot of third parties as well. And it, it all comes down to their people, right? They have to recognize that um, they are accountable to make sure that they follow their processes. And all it takes, when we say all it takes is one click, well, all it takes is one person going out of their normal approved business process to make a change to a vendor banking routing information to make a change on how they send out checks, right? So I think it's very important that you stick to your processes and just continue to educate them um, on business email compromise. Um, that's very specific to, to what Brian mentioned, but there's different ways that we would uh, address the mitigation to other types of third-party risk um, around, for instance, if a third-party's environment was triggered and they were to go down, you know, yes, we want to make sure we have the right contracts in place to limit our liability, to make sure we get our services back up and running, to make sure the SLAs are met. But in that case, it's very important that as an organization, you identify what business critical functions are existing within your hospital and your health plan, and you make sure that you keep those business continuity plans updated, simulated, and refreshed. And, and we've all, I don't know if you know, many healthcare has gone through this, but we recently just went through a very impactful situation where one of our business critical third party vendors providing us timekeeping services. Uh, <laughs> I won't mention the six letter word, but yes, they mm -hmm. were down and it was very impactful for us. Did we have business continuity plans? We sure did. But did those plans, were they sustainable for 74 days? not so much, right? So when that happens, yes, we can go back to the contracts to make sure they, they pass the security assessment review. They have, you know, the business associate agreement, the information security schedules, whatever it may be, but we're still down. And that's very impactful. So, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier before the call is it's, it's very important that not only invest in your cybersecurity program, and invest in doing the right thing with the contracts process and vendor risk management. But internally as operational leaders of an organization, we have to realize our reliance on digital technologies and what that means when those technologies are not available. There's no 100% available technology out there. So we have to really prepare because at the end of the day is to keep our organization resilient uh, and make sure that we can provide care and run our operations for our workforce. Yeah, you really <clears throat> kind of blew my mind in terms of, you know, I, I guess I hadn't mentally um, thought about them getting into the third party system first and they're in there and then essentially sending the email from there. So that's kind of mind blowing. It's uh, and it makes you think, Shafali, 
how much do we expect uh you know individuals to to be on guard during their work day i mean how when does it impact the ability to function when you you know you can't trust anything and teresa mentioned um a point at which a change is requested something different so oh send the check here or here's new banking information those are huge red flags i would imagine but as ryan mentioned it's the jigsaw puzzle approach it's a little bit here a little bit there and then when they approach, approach the next person they've picked up some breadcrumbs of factual information that makes their story all the more uh, compelling. Um, but Shafali, what are your overall thoughts on what we've been talking about? Yeah, no, I think uh, Teresa and Ryan hit it right on the head. And I think there's some other evolution going on here when we talk about third-party risk, because more and more pressure is being put on health organizations to go to the cloud. And when we go to the cloud, how much control do we as leadership or even a system owner have over that third-party cloud vendor, right? And so it becomes even more critical to understand, you know, if you're going to have a third-party vendor hosting the application on-prem or in the cloud, and if it's in the cloud, how do you hold that system owner in your own organization accountable to maintaining the relationship with the vendor and making sure that that application that's sitting in the cloud has all the proper security controls in place. And so, you know, in your contracting, in your business associate agreement, um, is there provisions that state what cloud security should look like as we move more and more to the cloud, right? We're starting to see more and more data center consolidations. And so that will increase what we mean by third-party risk, right? Because we're going to have all these unmanaged websites out there, cloud vendors that we'll have to take a look at. And so when I think of, you know, Ryan Proofpoint and, um, you know, web filtering and CASBs, uh, you know, those become a part of the third party life cycle and, and they should. Ryan, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I, I, what I would add is, um, I mean, there's a lot of technology, a lot of capabilities we can kind of talk about when we get into maybe the, the meat of this conversation. But I want to make sure we don't just um, pigeonhole the threat in terms of accounts payable or the finance function within the organization. Uh, one of the things that has been um, very clear to me and becomes, it's almost a little bit disturbing, is when you, when you realize to what degree the bad actors understand the environment of whom they're targeting. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an example we looked at um, with an academic uh, healthcare institution. They had a very, I would consider, because I'm probably I'm very much a novice in this area, that very esoteric level of research that they were clearly had a level of world-renowned expertise in, things that I just really couldn't make sense of. But the bad actors understood that. And we, you know, based on our sort of ability to understand where within their environment the threats were coming in, I would say two-thirds of the threats were being targeted to a very small number of, of individuals within, well, they had five different sort of um, research institutes, but it really was just one research institute that was kind of spearheading this, uh, this, this, this level of, uh, of research that they were known for. And that's 
where all of the attempt to go um, steal that data, that IP, and in this instance, they were they were trying to basically um, so make this kind of a third party threat. They were becoming kind of like one of the repositories for for research for multiple institutions. So they kind of like that would be the place that 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 institutions would come to basically drop their research in or go research the repository, and that was something that the bad actors figured out. They were attacking that area. They were trying to steal IP from that area. And so, yes, the, the, anything, anybody who's has to do with finance or with approving or redirecting payments or, you know, um, are definitely going to be targeted. But if there are other parts of your institution that you are known for because of your prowess or capability, you better bet that the bad actors don't understand that as well. And they will also be targeting you there. Very good. Very good. Um, Shafali, I want to ask you about something. Uh, and Teresa touched on this a little bit. So we'll go around the horn. The idea that you want to stay away. I imagine you want to stay away from a uh, sort of a checking the box mentality. Um, and by that, what I mean is you can have the contracts in place. They can be solid. Um, and you could say, all right, we, you know, we've got everything contractually set, but if you're down, you're still down and yeah, you might have a great lawsuit later, but you're still down, right? It's the Teresa mentioned 74 days still down. So yeah, we might get our money back. We may get satisfaction, who knows, whatever, but you're still down. So how does that affect the way you approach things? If you say, I don't want to just sort of cover my bases. I want to do everything I can to ensure business continuity and operations. Yeah, it's a great question. And so um, one of the processes for assessing third-party risk is to look at your security risk assessment per vendor. And as part of that assessment, there should be questions that we all should be asking of a vendor that what is their business continuity plan. Mm -hmm. And then looking at that plan, how does that align with your own organization's plan? Are there synergies? Are you able to sync up? Do you have downtime procedures? If your vendor is in the cloud and there's a DDoS attack, what do you do? How do you get notified? What are, who's got the responsibility for securing it, for example, in the cloud, right? Is it the organization that needs to provide some kind of security tool or will it be the vendor that hosts the, the cloud application? And I'm using cloud application as um, an example, but again, it's looking at the vendor as a whole, what their business continuity plan entails and how it aligns internally within your own organization. Um, so let me give you an example. If there was a, a vendor that was down, how would you continue if, let's say, in a, a covered entity, you know, your pharmacy system went down? You can't dispense medications. You can't write scripts. Um, you can't get into, say, uh, just use uh, an EHR general generally. And so how do you communicate that? So do all of your departments uh, know where their business continuity plans are? What are their downtime procedures? Is there a contact at the vendor that you can establish? And, you know, I'm assuming that everyone's got a command center, knows what that is, knows who's part of it, knows who's got what roles to play in it. And third party, 
vendors should be involved as part of that business continuity testing, planning, and making sure that those are tested. You know, we go through uh, testing about every 90 days, um, not just once a year. And we escalate different types of testing uh, versus just doing tabletops all year to check the box. And so, you know, we go through what's called functional testing as well, where you definitely want to go into a unit or a department and say, okay, system's down. What do you do? Who do you talk to? Who do you call? Do you have paper? You know, I'm using the pharmacy example. And so do you have paper scripts lying around somewhere you can get access to Um, or, you know, have, do you have to retrain all your physicians because they're so busy clicking into computer systems they forgot how to write a script on paper, for example, mm-hmm. right? So there's some education and awareness that needs to be done during downtime. Um, and then, so the third-party risk, I would say that you definitely have to know who you're going to call first when that system goes down, you know, and there's a change control procedure that should be in place at all organizations to say, oh, yep, service desk or help desk gets the tickets, understand that we've got a situation. What's the you know chain of command? How do you communicate? How do you get the command center set up? Do you have a priority warrant one procedure where you're talking through exactly who needs to get into the room? Does it start with just the help desk and the manager or director or leadership over the help desk? And then how do you escalate that to your vendor? Now, if you flip it to the other side where the vendor knows that they're down, how are you as an organization going to receive that communication from mm-hmm. the vendor? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it has to work both ways. And so both have to understand the vendor and the organization, what that business <laughs> company plan entails. I think that's key and testing it together. Yeah. Um, Teresa, that's uh Shefali makes a lot of uh, great points. Um, and about that business continuity plan, um, you know, that's why it's there. It's there because when things happen, there can be an element of panic, right? Depending on how bad it is. And that's why we have downtime procedures. So we open the binder or if it's on whatever it is. And okay, as we've discussed and we've figured out and we'd workshop, this is what we do first, right? You don't have to want to sit there in that uh, stress-filled moment and try and remember what's the proper order of things? Who do we need to have in the room? I mean, that's elementary stuff, but it's still important. As she mentioned, every 90 days, a couple of things she mentioned, every 90 days type thing is a frequency thing. The other thing she mentioned, which I've heard before, is the limitations of tabletop exercises, that they do have their limitations in terms of usefulness. So anywhere you want to take that, Teresa, anything you want to pick up on there? I think the, um, I think it's a combination that needs to happen of, of exercises. The tabletop is very important because it drives a lot of Q&A and um, that may not they, that may not come up as you're documenting, if you will, the actual downtime procedures or business continuity plans. And it takes it at a very senior level leadership executive where we put together our system command structure, right, where we have our executive VPs and then we have logistics, planning, HR, finance, IS, marketing, um, legal, health plan. We have all these groups together. And so that's a very useful exercise, but that's kind of the top level. And then we, we drive it down to simulation centers for our clinical units and our business units, which is very helpful as well. But again, I don't think one tabletop is enough, right? And it, it needs to drill down to the specific units, because if you ask some of, some of the operational leaders, 
know, what is your critical function? And do you know how many technologies are under the hood to enable that technology? Most of the time, they don't know right off the bat. They need to have that partnership and collaboration with IS. So the example earlier I mentioned around timekeeping. Timekeeping is a critical function that needs to have downtime procedures and its practice. But that touches children. It takes nine technologies to be up and running for, for timekeeping to work, right? That cloud solution that went down was one of nine technologies that happened to fail and it, imp and it impacted us for 74 days. Had any other technologies within that ecosystem went down, including our firewall, you never know, on-premise, that could have taken down timekeeping and other business functions. So I think it's having, starting to have that very transparent conversation with your operational leaders, you know, to understand how we used to like you to use or how complex it is in the back of the house. Um, used to be more of like, hey, that's our lane. We like, you probably won't understand it. To now the conversation is happening very transparently to let them understand how complex it is and make them digital experts as we have been so that they truly understand how impactful it will be when any of their technologies go down. So I, I agree with what, you know, everything Shafali said, you know, including disaster recovery, failover testing needs to happen. And that's in our shop and IT world. We need to make sure we do that regularly. One of the things we started modifying with our um, risk assessment is we used to ask for your, your, your typical SOC 2, type 2 assessments, ISO certifications, HIPAA certifications, high trust, but now we're going a little bit deeper. So we're asking if you have business continuity and downtime procedures, I'm sorry, disaster recovery procedures, share with us how often do you do and what are the outcomes of the, those failover tests. In the world of cloud right now, you know, and how ransomware works, unless you have a completely offsite air gap disaster recovery data center, there's a high probability that if you don't have the right process in place, that malware will propagate to your DR site. So, which happens to a lot of cloud vendors that, you know, that many of us use. So what is their plan C, right? What happens if their DR does go down and they're hosting 15,000 customers' data and functions, you know, go down. So how do they prepare for that? So we're getting a lot, I feel like we're getting a little bit more deeper when we do our risk assessments for all of our cloud vendors. And I think it's important because if we're going to invest in it on premise, we want to make sure there's parity with the cloud vendors that we do business with. Great stuff, Ryan. Uh, where do you want to jump in there? So much good yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, I think Teresa and Shafali make really good points. I, I think what I would maybe add here is it's it's easy to get blasé about this sort of work. Um, it's really important work, and it's easy to kind of revert to the norm, saying, okay, you know, that sort of threat is kind of maybe diminished and so forth. We don't need to worry so much about it. I always try to encourage, um, and I do it myself, to go reread this New York Times article, which appeared two years ago. And they detailed what happened to the University of Vermont Medical Center with regards to their attack. And what was impactful for me about that article is they wrote the impact of them being down for about five weeks from the perspective of a patient, from the perspective of a clinician, from a perspective of a regulator, info stack, infosec staff, et cetera. And you just realize how 
I mean, how just truly awful that event was for everybody involved, not, not less the patients, of course, but it, it just reminds you that, yes, we shouldn't get Wellesley about this because if this were to happen to your health system, your environment, it cuts to the core about the mission of, of the institution and why you're there and how you're meant to serve your community and the role, the important role you play in, in your community. And if you can't provide those services for whatever reason, because you can't get access to your systems, just the huge turmoil and the impact. And so, I, you know, it just for me, it just reminds us that we shouldn't get blase about this. These are real problems that definitely really impact institutions right across this country. Very good. All right. Um, let's talk about this uh, in a big picture way. Uh, how are you vetting new vendors? Has the process you use changed or intensified over the last few years? And this is interesting. The, the shadow or gray IT purchases that don't go through a security assessment. So that's something we have not talked about. So two elements. The first, the first question, I want to be a little more specific. Um, how does it go beyond sort of taking the vendor's word for it? Uh, these assessments, these questionnaires and different things you do, the interactions. Uh, I believe there are third-party entities that, you know, a couple of them that can give a stamp of approval uh, that a vendor's got good practices. But tell me more about that. And and how do you feel comfortable that the information you're being given is is accurate and, and genuine? And then the gray IT. Um, Teresa, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I mean, I support situations. I would say we have a, a pretty um, robust vendor risk management process. And it starts with, um, we have a business engagement meeting. We have about 20 of those that IT leads and represents for all of the clinical and business areas. And that really is an opportunity for our um, operational leaders to come to the table and present us with a problem statement, a problem statement that could be addressed and resolved with a, a digital technology. Um, traditionally, in those conversations, like, okay, what solutions do you need? We have a portfolio. You can leverage something existing. But it's kind of more to the point where we start asking very relative questions, related questions around architecture, controls, and security kind of standards at that point. And that helps kind of slow down the funnel of um, the business asking for a third-party cloud provider or a technology that could already be high risk. We do our best as we can there. But then the second part is going through the contracts process. Um, that contract process, we have pre-questionnaires that we are expecting the vendors to be as honest as possible when they're responding to it. Um, but we have recognized that based on the responses that they're giving to us, and we do our deep dive discovery meetings, a lot of times the folks that are filling out these questionnaires are not the right individuals from the organization. Um, you know, this is not something that I am proud of, but our risk assessments can take anywhere between one to two weeks to 120 days. And it's because we want to make sure we have conversations with the right teams from the third parties to get a level of comfort. Um, it's not just questionnaires and discovery meetings, though. You know, Anthony, you mentioned earlier about um, other firms. We we require, if you will, um, a SOC 2 type 2, which is 
typically performed by an AICPA certified organization. And it and it, we do a SOC 2 because it's not just at a point of time. These um, assessment entities, if you will, go into the third party's environment and perform testing, if you will, for at least one year's worth of evidence that the processes and the programs they have in place is continuously working effectively as designed based on very key principles on security, confidentiality, availability, and whatnot. So we asked for that, um, which I, I will admit though, like for large organizations that have done quite a investments in their security program, they have a SOC 2 type 2. And sometimes the SOC 2 type 2 come back quite clean, right? And um, we do trust, we have to, that's, that is our only means, if you will, at this point, to verify from an independent third party that that institution is keeping up with the pace and maturing their cyber program. But we all know, and everyone on this call that is a CIO or CISO, is that you can make billions of dollars of investments in your security program. It doesn't mean you won't get penetrated. It doesn't mean you won't fall victim to an attack. So um, we recognize that as customers of third parties. So we have pretty tight uh, terms and conditions in our contracts to help mitigate that risk. Uh, but it also goes back to you know being accountable. Like, just because we sign a contract with a third party to help partner with us to enable a business function or a clinical function doesn't mean that we are washing our hands clean of accountability of keeping the lights on and keeping operations going from a executives and a management perspective. So we we talk about layering security layers of defense for our own network. Well, we have to layer in controls and operational processes to make sure we do the right thing for our patients and members as well. So. Just because you go to the cloud and you have all these ironclad contracts and they have their SOC 2s and we review them every every year and they're clean, it does not mean that there's that it's a silver bullet, right? So we still have to be prepared internally as operational leaders of the institution. Very, very good. Great information. Shafali, um, your thoughts around that? Again, sort of looking at that concept of um, trust but verify as they say so you're getting things filled out and 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 but that second level of of verification what are your thoughts around that yeah so so you said a key word anthony trust and that's something we don't do easily at eeh um, regarding vendors we look at the vendors as with brand new eyes and say you know, because we don't even look at reuse either, because the situation at hand with the vendor that we're looking to implement their system is a new relationship for us. And so even if we have a product that a vendor that we're using, uh, let's say we're using GE and we know we've got multiple products of theirs, but if they have a brand new product, mm-hmm. start an entire new security risk assessment on them all over again. So just because we reviewed one product doesn't mean that same or the new product is going to follow the same data workflow, security controls, it's going to have variations. And so like the new product may come with a camera attached. So how do you address that, right? Because maybe other products didn't have a camera. So we look at each product, each vendor uniquely each time to make sure we understand the implications and then the security controls we would like them to have in place. And I'll bring up a situation where remote access control. 
Remote access control is a hot topic where you know, we rely on the vendor to be able to remote in for support. Now, do you as the organization get to use your own remote access control tool? Or do you have to use what the vendor tells you that they have in place? And then if that's the case, will you be able to see who's accessing your network when a remote support call is placed? So there are some of these gray areas where you do have to work through with the vendor and assess them on that during your third-party risk assessment. So the question we always ask is, you know, why do you need connectivity to our network? What is that going to look like? Is it encrypted? So there's many questions. And, and you know, mentioning SOC too, we look at those, but we revet all of the controls all over again. We have our own questionnaire that we require vendors to complete following the NIST 853 uh, security controls. And so we go through every single one of those questions. We assess the vendor. They are provided a letter grade. And if there are any high and critical risks that are identified, we go through each one line by line and understand exactly what that risk is to us as an organization. And if there is pressure, and I'm sure Teresa, you can probably um, understand this too, is that there's sometimes there's pressure put on a CISO to, we need to get this in now, it's affecting a patient care. So how do you work within that parameters where you've got the security risk assessment just started, but the pressure is to get that system in place. And so sometimes you can do things in tandem, but you might have to push back a little bit to say, okay, wait, let's look at the high and critical. What is the leadership willing to accept as far as risk? So having a governance structure in place when you're doing your security risk assessments comes um, it comes full circle because not only is the CISO taking the risk, but the organization has to accept the risk as well. And so when we look at um, the vendors and vetting them, the process has definitely intensified over the last few years. Uh, with the recent Log4j uh, vulnerability, we go through and we ask our vendors, what vulnerabilities have you been impacted by as part of our risk assessment? It's not just do you scan for vulnerabilities anymore. It's what vulnerabilities were you impacted by and what do you scan for? Uh, and so then we also scan. So, you know, looking at shadow or gray IT purchases, we have locked down our equipment as much as possible. And we do have two CASBs, one that's proactive and that's one that's reactive. And so we invest heavily in our security tools to look at the entire life cycle of websites and web applications. We also have web filtering that we look at as part of this vetting process. Now, you know, we go through and look at these vendors and say, hmm, do we have a vendor in-house currently that can do the same thing? Or is this new vendor going to do it better? And so we look at that as well. Uh, I think the important piece here is to make sure that the vendor understands that just because they have a contract with us for other products doesn't mean that they'll mm -hmm. get a contract again for a new product. Um, we have turned down new vendors and, you know, because they'll come back with higher critical risks that they cannot mitigate. They cannot even put a plan together to show us that they have the ability to scan for vulnerabilities as an example. So we will say no to vendors now. Um, before I think the culture was, oh no, no, we never say no to a vendor because we need them. But now it's getting to the point where we do or are able to say no. And I'll give you another example is that sometimes you'll have biomedical device manufacturers or the OEMs say, well, 
this is the only machine you have and they, they've got the large market share. So how do you work within the secure controls of that? One of the things that I do request is the, the quality system review. And so we end up having to ask for the FDA certification information. So we take, like Teresa was saying, deeper dives into our vendors, looking for other types of certifications. So if someone says, hey, yeah, we, we're, you know, we, we've got remote access control, we've got a tool you can use. We will spend time with that vendor to look at their tool, look at their activity and audit logs, understand exactly what's in there. We find sometimes that the vendors don't have the logs um, as what may have been certified. And so we question those and we look at that very carefully. So, so there's an intense process that we go through now. Excellent. Ryan, um, you know, they, we're getting a picture painted, which is very interesting, of a CISO CISOs who can be under a lot of pressure um, and have to hold up to a lot of pressure in order to sort of hold the line. Um, and I'm thinking pressure, you know, often the software is requested by an internal customer or constituency. Let's say a, a big, big, big time surgeon wants uh, a new toy, a new application or whatever, or a department. It doesn't matter. There's pressure internally from a high value internal customer that wants this. So there's pressure there to, we want this. Don't stand in the way of us taking care of patients and things like that. I'm also, you know, interested in this. There's a lot of self-reporting going on by these vendors. Uh, they're filling out questionnaires. They're the ones that want the business and they're filling out the questionnaires as to how good their security is. Yeah, we hope everybody's honest, but you know, we've mentioned these third parties that can come in and give stamps. There's something there. I would imagine you'd want as much as possible these third parties or go in and check it out kind of element because the vendors have an interest in self-reporting that everything's great. You're getting pressure from your internal customers to just do it. So it's a, it's a lot of holding line. If you don't have a CEO who's supportive of you and who sort of is, hey, come on, can we just get this done? You can be in a difficult position. What are your thoughts? Well, I was going to maybe take it a little bit of a different direction. And because one of the things that we see a lot of examples of, and I would be curious to what Teresa and Shafali are, are experiencing is, is the component of when you have to go renew your cybersecurity insurance, to what degree those much more expansive questionnaires um, now are placing demands in how you best vet your third parties um, about, about are they, do they have the right sort of controls in place to help you um, satisfy the requirements of the policy? Because we've certainly seen a lot of evidence there of, of, of that changing and, and what's, what's being required of cybersecurity, cybersecurity insurance vendors uh, being much, much more demanding in that area. Teresa, you want to jump in there? That's my favorite topic. <laughs> Is that sarcasm or are you serious? Insurance and speaking with underwriters. No, um, I will say, I was just talking about this not too long ago, um, definitely seeing a shift in the past two years on the scrutiny and the level of questioning that our um, cybersecurity insurance underwriters are, are having with um with CISOs, but even with Texas Children's. And I actually welcome it. Um, previous to about two years ago, we we used to send, um, we get a questionnaire from them and we would fill out, you know, 
what change in our environment, what controls do we have in place, what we don't, what are we working on, and then it'll go off and we'll get cybersecurity insurance. And that's actually managed through our risk management team here. Um, but just last year, um, just, just reading the news and understanding there's a lot of um, insurance providers out there that are very reluctant in providing cybersecurity insurance just due to the proliferation of damages that is caused by operational threat actors. It's um, They want to make sure that they cover the entities that actually take cybersecurity seriously. Uh, I remember being on a call with over 12 different markets over in Europe and in the U.S., and it was a very technical conversation um, in a very good way. They asked not just about what we do for third-party risk management. They talked about our own on-premise environment. They talked about training our end users, talked about all of the zero days that have been happening um, with Microsoft and other critical software companies and what our actions were and how quickly did we respond. They took a look at our org charts and wanted to make sure that the right investments are in place, not just from a technology standpoint, but from a people processes and technology standpoint. And um, so I think they're being very thorough for good reason. Um, and that that process was very eye-opening to me. And I, I welcomed it and I enjoyed it. And after speaking with all of my other peers across healthcare and outside of healthcare, it's, um, it's a trend that's happening across all industries for cybersecurity insurance. And um, so I hope I answered your question, Anthony, on, on that one. I think it was two-part and I forgot what the first no, I think, Ryan, did you have any follow-up or, or is that good? And then we'll go to Shafali. I think I, I appreciate the answer. So, yeah, Shafali, what's your experience in this area? Yeah, so um, we have gone through cybersecurity insurance renewal many times. And, you know, basically a lot of these companies don't want to insure cybersecurity anymore. And if they're going to, you're going to get double the premium and less coverage. Um, but that is a fact as we see ransomware increasing. Um, and, you know, just last year, we saw ransomware change into something else called killware, basically, where now it's, you know, we, we heard of a woman in Germany passing away. We heard of a baby in Alabama passing away. So we're starting to see a, a different trend there with ransomware. It's no longer about the money. It's about the impact. And so based on that, uh, looking at cybersecurity insurance, um, there is that where the insurance companies ask a lot of questions about third-party vendors. And even now, what I do see on the applications is that they will list out specific vendors. Were you impacted by this breach? Were you impacted by that breach, right? Um, you know, and they list out specific vendors that have had breaches. Then they ask you questions about if you were impacted and how was it mitigated and um, what compensating controls did you put in? And then they also have their own list of vendors that they are saying, well, you know, if you have these vendors, you might maybe uh, be looked at favorable. So, so there's this preferred list of vendors mm. that sometimes uh, these cybersecurity insurance brokers might have, uh, which is encouraging if you have those. And if you don't have those vendors, then um, you know it's something you can look forward to maybe uh, changing in the future. But um, cybersecurity insurance, it, it is evolving. And um, again, with all the increase in cyber attacks with world events, um, I don't see many uh, insurance uh, companies covering it anymore. Uh, so that's why I think it needs to go back to where internally looking at yourself and saying, hmm, you know, 
do I do a captive? Do I self-insure? What does that look like? So, but yes, there's definitely an evolution, Ryan. All right, I want to try and uh, sneak uh, one more in here. Well, Teresa, I want to give you an opportunity to ask one or both of your co-panelists a question. Sure. Um, maybe this can be to uh, Shafali. You know, with we mentioned earlier with the rise of moving to the cloud, and we all know the benefits of moving to the cloud, right? You can have your teams focus on more strategic initiatives, less maintenance. Um, you can innovate faster. You can help drive velocity uh, for our business partners. It's all, all great. Um, however, there is a huge rise in attacks happening with cloud providers as well. So we've gotten this question internally is, do we need to stop going to the cloud? Do we need to bring things back on premise? So how do you, is that question being asked to you or your IT peers um, at your institution? And what type of response are you giving back to, at this point, maybe the board or even your president and CEO? Yeah, no, great question, Teresa. And so I will say that I'm selective about what goes in the cloud and what stays on-prem. And I work very carefully with our uh, CTO and CIO to understand what the risks are from on-prem versus cloud. So, um, yep, you know, there's less staff to when you go to cloud. So there's some savings there, definitely. But so taking email as an example, a lot of people want to move to the cloud. But for the longest time, I kept everything on-prem for email. So therefore, you know, if anything happened, Microsoft goes down, doesn't impact us. Um, we get email all the time, it's on-prem. Uh, you have an EHR, do you host it in the cloud or do you keep it on-prem? I keep it on-prem, it doesn't go down. So there's things like that that you have to weigh, you know, what services do you want in the cloud and what services you don't. So it definitely makes for a complex infrastructure, uh, makes it very hard sometimes to, you know, if something goes down on-prem, you've got to get a technician out there, right, on-prem, on-site, versus someone remoting in, and that can be possible as well. So I think it just depends on the, the type of service you're, you're looking at moving into the cloud. Now, I know that, you know, some folks host their domain in the cloud. And that is where I see a lot of people moving towards um, hosting their domain. Um, so the question there is, how is that domain, that vendor who's hosting your domain, protecting and securing your domain that way, especially from DDoS attacks and how do they communicate? Uh, so communication, maintaining that relationship are key. Well, I wish we had another 15 minutes, uh, but we don't. So I want to get a quick call it a, a lightning round final word of advice from our speakers for, again, your fellow health system CISOs or CIOs who are grappling with the, the area of third-party risk. Um, your best takeaway for them, something that you really feel that you're doing well, sort of a nugget of, of wisdom, um, if you would do that for me. Shafali, can you go first? Sure. So the parting advice that I would have is that question everything, question why that new vendor, that new system is needed, understand what security controls that vendor is coming with and how it syncs up with your own controls and workflows. And then the last piece is really the coordination between the supply chain process, right? So looking at from the point of purchase, uh, looking at the product life cycle from cradle to grave, what does that entail? 
Excellent, Teresa. I guess my tip would be that um, first recognize that moving to the cloud to third parties is not going to slow down. Um, also understand that the level of sophistication and threats will not slow down as well. And you have a, a team, a dedicated team right now to help protect and safeguard you know, operations and your information. So I guess a tip would be whenever there is a situation that's brewing in the media or in the news or next door to another peer hospital, use that opportunity, raise awareness to your operational leaders, your executives, share with them why this can happen with at your institution versus what mitigating controls that you have in place due to their support and investments where it can't happen in your place and they continue to drive your program. Your program should never end. Your program needs to evolve with the emerging threats that's happening and that we're seeing that. And it's right now a front and center in the news and the media. So don't waste a crisis. Take advantage of that and, and move, move your program forward with business justification on why you need to do so. Excellent. Don't waste the crisis. Love it. Ryan, final word. Uh, yeah, just maybe a technology or a tactical tip, given that Shafali and Teresa really kind of covered the main topics here. Um, isolation technology. So really important technology we find for people who are in your supply chain uh, is this ability to containerize their sort of engagements with third-party vendors. And so they don't have any undue, you as a health system, don't have any undue exposure with how they have to go interact with those third parties. It just offers a safeguard that I think would be, that is useful. I don't think it's necessarily right for everybody in your health system, but those who work in this very vulnerable way because they have to interact with those third parties, I think it's, a, it's an important control that we see being used uh, successfully elsewhere. And Ryan, you and I discussed that in a little more detail in an interview we did recently that's on our website. So if anybody wants to check that out, that's certainly an interesting topic we got into. All right, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll receive an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming events. With that, I want to very much thank our panel. It's a tremendous panel today. Shafali Mukancheri, Teresa Tontat, and Ryan Witt. And I want to thank Proofpoint for sponsoring and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Mm -hmm.